Hello, friends. It's an honor and delight to be here with Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II, who is the president and senior lecturer of Repairs of the Breach, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, bishop with the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary, pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Goldsboro, North Carolina, and the author of four books most recently, holding here, We Are Called to Be a Movement from Workman Publishing. Hope you'll check that out. Reverend Dr. Barber also is the architect of the Moral Movement, which began with weekly Moral Mondays protests at the North Carolina General Assembly in 2013 and relaunched again online in August 2020 under the banner of the Poor People's Campaign. Reverend Barber, thank you so much for taking time to talk. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Um, Quite a, quite a pleasure. I, I hear a lot about your audience and your work. And I'm just honored to be with you today. Thank you so much. So to jump right in, you know, in addition to the political revolutions that we know that we need, that which have their own organizing strategies, how do we lead a spiritual revolution? One where we can sustain empathy, sustain care for the most vulnerable. Well, one of the things we say at Repairs of the Breach is that we have to have what we call moral, uh, analysis, moral articulation, and moral activism. And by moral analysis, we mean doing analysis that breaks away from the puny language of left and right and conservative and liberal and centrist. I don't know what centrist means. I often tell people, what does that mean? You only help 50% of poor folk. <laughs> but th those lang that language is too puny. And what we need to do is delve into the deeper moral language of our constitution, moral language of our faith traditions. And from that place, critique public policy. Uh, so for, for people of faith, it would be, does this piece of policy lift the poor nose on the margins? Does it promote love, justice, and truth? From a constitutional standpoint, does it establish justice? Does it provide for the common descent? Does it ensure equal protection under the law? That creates a very different kind of conversation. And then lastly, we have to understand that a spiritual revolution is a political revolution. It's not a partisan revolution. But I don't know of any way to understand the ancient Jewish prophets or even a more recent prophet like Rabbi Heschel or the disciples of Jesus Christ or, or someone like Dr. King without understanding that a religious spiritual revolution is not just about personal relationship with God, but about how the personal relationship or the spiritual relationship with God transformed how we are in the world, how it moves us from what Buber called the I, I, me kind of relationship to the we a relationship. And so we must have a political, a spiritual revolution that is clearly understands it's about the politics of God. And the politics of God is, is first of all, you don't worship anybody but God. So you don't worship money, you don't worship greed, you don't worship hate. And then secondly, you care for your neighbor and you lift from the bottom and you ask the question in every society, how are the disenfranchised? How are the poor? How are the children? That's, that's the, those are the questions. And lastly, you put a face on it. Yeah. You got to show the country the fate and the pain and even the death of regressive public policy. Very powerful. So for those who are, those like yourself, someone like me who strives to do this work, those who are fighting for justice day in and day out, how do they maintain the spiritual resilience to stay in the struggle? Especially when one themselves is doing it from a place of poverty or deep vulnerability. How, do, how does one cultivate the resilience to stay in the struggle? I have community. You got to be in a community of resistance. I mean, the prophets had schools of prophets, right? Ezekiel found his power in the Valley of Dry Bones. He didn't find his power up in the palace. He was able to stand in the palace because he went in the valley. <laughs> Jesus, 
uh, had disciples, but he hung out among the 5,000 that were hungry. He hung out among the lepers. Uh, he, that's, that's where he was. And so I think you find it from being amidst the people. Remember, remember that when King was in jail and he wrote the Birmingham letter, and the, there were these nice pastors who were telling him to wait. And King started laying out, but wait a minute, what about the people? What about the people? He, 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 and he started laying out the stories. I still thought that for me, <clears throat> resiliency in my spirit comes from, say, when I, like just yesterday, I was with in Bessemer. And I hear these workers, black and white and brown, all from a perspective of faith and a deep sense of humanity, challenging this giant called Amazon and this, this, um, this billionaire that's seeking to, to undermine their right to work. And they're not tired. And how dare me get tired? How dare us get tired? So if you go among people who are fighting every day, it will empower you to stay in the fight because you're not in the fight for them. You're in the fight with them. You know, so one of those most important fights today that uh, we are following you on, among so many others, is this issue of voting rights and voter suppression. And I would put up as a part of that, I assume you would too, the fight for D.C. statehood. Oh, yes. Make sure there's democratic representation and human dignity is honored. And this is obviously a faith issue, as you said. Where do we begin? What's the most pressing issue? What's the what's the frontline fight in voter suppression right now? Genesis chapter one. That we've all been created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, and that God never suppressed the vote of humanity. He gave us the right to choose. And that when you suppress somebody's vote, in a country that does not give the right to vote to parakeets, puppies, and, and pets. We say that the right to vote is for those who are, who, are, who are 18 years or older, born or naturalized in these United States. That's, that's what the Constitution says. So anytime I try to suppress somebody's vote, undermine their vote, abridge their vote, uh, I'm suggesting that they're not a people, they're not a person, that they're not a citizen then that puts, means that voting, suppressing the vote is a theological issue. That means I'm trying to take the place of God. I'm, I'm doing something God didn't even do. God didn't suppress humanity's vote. He gave us free will. You know, he let you choose. And so this stuff is very, very much spiritual battles. Uh, that's why the people who fought for the right to vote, they left churches and they were willing to be beaten. You know, in America, we have to remember uh, that the, uh, uh, the after slavery, the, the slaves wanted more than freedom. They wanted citizenship, full of citizenship, right? That's why they fought for the 14th Amendment, not just the 13th freedom of slavery, end of slavery, the 14th equal protection under law for all persons, not just for all citizens, and then for the 15th Amendment. Now, lastly, we also have to understand that those who suppress the vote do not do it just because they don't like black people. The suppression of the vote is an attempt to suppress democracy. The suppression of the vote is an attempt to, to in particular in the South, it is a tool of the Southern aristocracy to create, constantly create a society as close to segregation as possible. But it is to it suppress the votes because of the fear of black and white and brown and native people joining together to restructure the political alliances, which then will restructure the economic analysis. So you, you Dr. King at the end of the uh, Selma to Montgomery March made a direct linkage between voter suppression and suppression of labor rights and economic justice. The same people that suppress the vote 
also block living wages, cut money for public education, stand against gay people, stand against our immigrant brothers and sisters and block health care. We can't bifurcate these conversations. People say, well, voter suppression is about black folk. It may be targeted at black, brown and, 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 and indigenous people, but ultimately voter suppression is, is idolatrous. Uh, it is, it is, and it, because it's, it's the people who are suppressing the vote are basically worshiping themselves, but it also is a tool that will be used to put people in office who then will suppress jobs and suppress living wages and suppress uh, healthcare, which by the way, will end up hurting more white people in raw numbers than black people, not in percentage, but in raw numbers. So one one last question for you today to honor honor your time. I'm very inspired by your work on so many fronts, and one of those is that we're following uh, following your leadership out here in Arizona, fighting for the $15 minimum wage and keeping pressure on Senator Senator Cinema, who has really been very disappointed uh-huh. on this. Uh-huh. We are outside her office uh, uh, protesting consistently on this front out here in coalition. And so what's the pathway now? I mean, we know the dignity of wages is so crucial right now. What's the pathway to get us to this $15 minimum wage? Well, first of all, I hope you'll invite me when I can post COVID to come stay in with you. Um, and this, we need to challenge those other eight, them white, five white males, three white women who decided to take 15 out of this reconciliation bill uh, well, actually, to vote against an amendment. Uh, it should have never been taken out of the bill when it came over from the House that should have been put on the floor. And I said this to my dear friend Chuck Summer, it should have been put on the floor as it was, forced the parliamentarian to rule uh, against it, which would have then allowed the vice president to overrule, which then mean, meant it would have taken 60 votes, not one vote, 60 votes. I mean, not 51 votes, would have taken 60 votes to overturn the, 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 the ruling of the president of the Senate, which is the vice president. Um, you know, from a spiritual standpoint, you know, where one of the great Jewish scriptures, Isaiah 58, I mean, they're all so great. Isaiah 10, woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights and make women and children that pray. Isaiah 58, I don't want to hear all of this religiosity. If you want to repair the breach, it says, loose the bands of wickedness, translated out of English and Hebrew and Greek, it means pay those, pay people what they deserve. Stop exploitation in the workplace. Jesus said, labor is worthy of his hire. So, so this is so sinful, right, um, for us to be in a country, and we haven't raised the minimum wage <clears throat> in years. Uh, 725 only allows a person to make $15,000 a year, which is poverty wages, starvation wages. A restaurant worker still make $2.13 an hour, which is just straight ungodly and, and, uh, and, and immoral. And then you had 49 white, uh, all but one Republicans who've never seen a pay hike they like, they've never seen a tax crate, uh, I mean, a, a, a pay hike they like and a tax cut for the wealth that they didn't like. And then they were joined by eight white senators. And this is what they didn't see. And I'll stop because I want your audience to get how ugly this is and how much, when, when they did that vote against um, uh, 15, uh, it was also a form of racism. Now, most folks won't say that because of the way we've been tending to think about racism, but here's what I mean. That was the Friday before the remembrance of Bloody Sunday. And remember Dr. King connected voting rights and economic, the, the fight for voting rights, the fight for economic justice for all poor and low wealth people as, as a fight. On the Friday before the anniversary of Bloody Sunday, your senator particularly, she did a little dance and did a little thumbs down. Now she said thumbs down to 
45% of black people who would have been lifted out of poverty if, if we did 15. She said thumbs down to, to, if it happened immediately, if you did $15 immediately, it would be 49 million poor and low wealth people of all races and growth would be lifted out of poverty to a living wage and it would pump 330 some million dollars. And she said thumbs down to that and acted as though that was some great thing. That was a play to the corporations. And then they hid behind the reconciliation, the bird rule, and all of these rules, when you check the history of them, the filibuster rule, were all rules when the Senate was all white men. And they were more interested many times in patting each other on the back than having to make serious votes on the floor of the United States Senate, which would transform this nation. That's the legacy that those eight Democrats joined. And they did it in the face of their party having it in the platform, the, the president running on it. And the party said that it was not only had a, uh, that ending poverty would not be just an aspiration. This is what Biden said, but a theory of change. Where do we go from now? We need it in the next reconciliation bill. If we're going to do an infrastructure bill, 15 in a union, 15 needs to be in that reconciliation bill. We can't let this go. We can't let it be placed in a situation where it can be filibustered out. And if it doesn't happen, then we need to organize for the 2022 election and go after Democrat or Republicans who, who are daring now to stand against voting rights and to stand against unions and to stand against living wages. And guess what? If we do that, one third of the electorate is poor and low wealth, 65 million people. If we organize among poor and low wealth people, we can send them home so that they can do their dances at home and we can do what we've got to do to, to make sure that the dream of justice becomes American reality. I mean to that, Reverend Barber, you know, you know, like you, I find my resilience being out with workers. And, uh, and when I talk to restaurant workers where one of our main campaigns is at, I see that those who are making $12 an hour or more, they can't feed their families. No. Not to mention those making minimum wage, not to mention the undocumented folks that we see in the back rooms making $5 an hour. $5, that's right. I mean, it, it is, it's unfathomable how anyone could live off anything even close to that. And so- well, let, me, uh, let me say one of the things we're gonna do. And last year on June 20th, we had a mass poor people's assembly mall march on Washington digitally. Had 2.7 million people show up during COVID. We are going to have a second rendition of that online, but we're going to also beyond that in June, we already got it June of 2022, call for Indy, a mass poor people's assembly, low wage worker assembly. Moral March on Washington. I want you to be there, bring all your friends. We're going to put, but we're going to put poor and low wealth people at the mic, not people talking for them. And we're going to remind folk <clears throat> that you cannot heal this nation if you don't address voter suppression and address uh, wages and, and unions and living wages, because it actually the living wage should be in some places as high as $22, $23 an hour. None of those senators would even try to live off what they suggest that people are doing, uh, should. Most, they are all using the wrong poverty. They're using the official poverty measurement, which basically says if you make $12,761 a year, you're not poor. Those, these, these are measurements that are outdated by 50 years and they were outdated when they were put in place. And then lastly, I bet you not one of those senators who I guarantee you, every one of them, if you ask them, do you love Dr. King? Yes, do you like, yes. Well, did you know that the, uh, the original March on Washington, there was a call for a $2 an hour minimum wage, which today would be 15. So we're 57 years late 
For black people, we're 400 years late because it took us from zero to 400 to get to 725. For tip workers, we're you know, that started, you know, you know, the history right after um, slavery, there was an attempt to keep black workers, particularly black women, as close to slavery as possible. So they would work, but they would have to uh, depend on tips. It's wrong. It's been wrong. It was wrong when the New Deal happened and there was an attempt to um, say that the agrarian culture and the domestic culture uh, uh, didn't have to pay a minimum wage, couldn't pay in the Social Security. So many times in this history of our country, instead of just doing right, we have compromised on the backs of the people who kept this country alive. And in the midst of this pandemic, I'm, I'm, I gotta go, I gotta go. But in the midst of this pandemic, the people who have died the most, who have gone to work the most, who've been forced to go to work the most, who've been paid the least are poor and low wealth workers. We gave them a name change, essential workers, but we treat them like they're expendable. And I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, don't come to us talking about you couldn't do it. Don't talk to us about Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin is not President Joe Biden is. And in his own, Joe Manchin's own state, like your Senator, 352,000 people in West Virginia make less than a living wage. And white people up there in those mountains, they're against that. And over what? A million in Arizona make less than a living wage. What's our rage for? We've got to organize those folk to say you have the power at the electorate to send people home that vote against your economic power and your economic justice. I mean, friends, this is a great place to close on. I wanted to hear that, what, what Reverend Barber just said, that healing the nation is not Democrats and Republicans becoming friends again over a Starbucks coffee. Healing the country is making sure the image of God in the working population, in the most vulnerable people, flourishes that the light is bright because they're treated with dignity. Uh, Reverend Barber, we hope you'll come out to Arizona post-COVID to march with us, and we will be marching behind you wherever you go. Thank you so much. And God bless you with the strength and the perseverance to keep going. Shalom, my brother, always.